Well, as we have been at pains to point out over the last two weeks, uh, we here at Chatswood Presbyterian usually base our sermon series on books of the Bible. But then, for one month every year, we have a series on a particular topic. And this year, we've chosen the very, very important topic of peacemaking. Uh, not because there is any particular issues in our church, but simply because conflict is, sadly, a part of life. And so we want to spend some time thinking about the Christian way of responding to conflict. Uh, today, we reach the third in our four-part series on peacemaking, following uh, Ken Sandy's book, The Peacemaker. Can you remember what we've uh, covered so far? Uh, week one, we learnt that the purpose of peacemaking is, in the words of Jeff, to go, 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 glorify God. It's not about winning. It's not even about being right. It is ultimately about us wanting to bring glory to God. Week two, last week, we learned that the first step in peacemaking is to go, 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 get the log out of your own eye. That is, the first thing we have to do is consider our own contribution in a conflict, whether it be our attitude or our words or our actions. We have to consider our own contribution and then take responsibility for it. Well, today we reach part three. And today we're going to think about how we can help the other person take responsibility for their contribution in a conflict. Today we're going to think about how we can gently restore the other person who has sinned. And it picks up the principle that we see in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, where we read, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. And so it recognises that when another person is sinning, we shouldn't just ignore it, but we should help that person take responsibility for their sin so that our relationship with them can be restored and, and so that ultimately their relationship with God can be restored. And it also recognises the manner in which this is to be done. We are to restore him gently. In other words, we're not to approach the other person with an attitude of condemnation or retribution, but rather with an attitude of gentleness. And the way that Ken Sandy in his book talks about how we actually go about gently restoring another person is through a five-step process. And it's these five steps that we're going to be looking at today. Okay, so do you see where we're headed today? We're going to think about the five steps involved in gently restoring another person. So let's get into it. Step one. Step one in gently restoring another person is to overlook minor offences. Now, we've already thought about this in past weeks. It's the idea that there are times when we might choose to, to simply overlook the offence of another person. Times when we might simply choose to just let it go. You know, you, you organised with a friend that you were going to meet up somewhere. You organised the time and the place and there you were waiting for them and they never arrived and you had to stand out in the rain for half an hour and, and you got all wet and it, and it made you quite cranky. But then you went away and you thought about it and you realised that this is a really difficult time for your friend. That there are all sorts of things going wrong for them at the moment. 
and you realise this is really out of character for them and, and that if they knew what happened, they would really be quite devastated. And so you think to yourself, you know what? I'm just going to let this go. I'm not going to think about it anymore. I'm not going to dwell on it. I'm just going to move on. And if you can overlook it like that, then great. That means this is the end of the five-step process for you. You stop here at step one. But then, according to Ken Sandy, there are certain times when you just cannot simply overlook a sin. And he gives four situations where that's the case. Firstly, he says you can't overlook a sin that dishonours God with outsiders. In other, in other words, when a person is claiming to be a Christian, but their sin is making Jesus look bad in front of non-Christians, well, you can't just overlook that sin. It dishonours the Lord. Secondly, he says you can't overlook a sin that is damaging your relationship with that person. So, for example, when you find yourself, you just can't let go of what they've done, for example. You keep thinking about it and dwelling on it. And after a while, it starts to change your thoughts or feelings about that person. You find yourself avoiding them, for example. Well, he says that this is also a case when you cannot overlook that sin. Third, he says you cannot overlook a sin that is hurting other people. And so, for example, where there's the chance that other people might see the sin of this person and then be uh, tempted to, to follow them in that sin. Well, that too is a sin that cannot be overlooked. So where a person is gossiping, for example, going around gossiping and drawing other people into that sin, you can't overlook it. And finally, fourthly, he says you can't overlook a sin that is hurting the offender themselves. So, for example, when a person is abusing alcohol, well, they are hurting themselves. And so you can't just overlook that sin. So, yes, there are times when you might choose to simply overlook the offences of other people. But then there are times when you must not do that. Times when you need to move on to step two of this five-step process in gently restoring another person. Step two, which is to talk in private. Now, at this time, at the, I will point out that the four remaining steps that we will look at today are all based on a single passage of Scripture. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 17, which we heard read for us earlier on, and which I have printed at the, the top of your sermon outline. We're going to work our way through this passage for the remaining four steps. And this passage uh, begins by saying, um, in uh, Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. And so this is step two in the process of gently restoring and it involves going and talking privately with the other person involved. Now, some people take this command to mean that you must never, ever involve another person at this stage, that it must only ever be between the two of you. And that is the general principle here. But Ken Sandy points out that there are a couple of times when it may be better to involve other people, even from the very beginning, 
people who can act as neutral mediators. So, for example, when you're dealing with someone from a culture where it is uh, customary to resolve problems through family representatives or uh, through trusted leaders, well then, it may be best to involve them from the start. Or when, for example, the situation involves some kind of abuse, well then, it's probably unwise for the victim to go and talk privately with the abuser. But that said, generally speaking, step two involves sooner or later meeting up with that person to try and fix the problem. Now, of course, our temptation at this point, when we do go and meet up with that person, our temptation is to begin that meeting by listing all of the sins that that person has committed against us. And of course, what does that result in? Well, it results more often than not in the other person then uh, listing all of our sins that we have committed against them. And then pretty soon everybody is defensive and everybody is argumentative. And at the end of a meeting like that, the winner is the person with the best oratory skills. Which, let's face it, means that no one won at all. Because remember, our goal is not to win the argument. Our goal is to glorify God. Our hope is to restore relationship. And so what is the best way to do step two? Well, Ken Sandy gives us a number of helpful tips which we're going to think about now. Firstly, he encourages us to begin by confessing our own contribution to the conflict, to get that log out of our own eye and then to come to that meeting plank in hand, confessing our own contribution whether it be uh, sinful attitudes or words or actions. And he, he points out that the funny thing is, when you do that, more often than not, you'll find that the other person then follows suit. They let their guard down and they too are more willing to admit their own sins. So, first thing to do is to confess your own contribution. Secondly, you need to give the other person the benefit of the doubt. Okay, here's the truth. Here's the general truth that you can take through life. Okay? Generally speaking, people aren't out to destroy your life. Generally speaking, people aren't out to make you miserable. The fact is, often there is a reasonable explanation for why people do what they do. And so as you go to that meeting, you need to go in offering that other person the benefit of the doubt. You know, maybe you misunderstood the situation. Maybe you misread it. Maybe you misunderstood their words. Maybe you just don't have the bigger picture. And so offer them the benefit of the doubt until you have all of the facts. And remember that if the other person senses that you really are trying to believe the best about them, then they're going to be much more inclined to listen to what you have to say. So offer them the benefit of the doubt. The next tip is to be quick to listen. Quick to listen. Now, I think for many of us, being quick to listen is something that comes quite unnaturally to us. I think for many of us, there we are in that meeting and the other person is trying to explain themselves. And what are we doing? Well, our minds are somewhere else thinking about the next line of argument that we're going to take. 
Or as that person is uh, speaking and explaining themselves to us, what do we do? We interrupt them constantly with our next onslaught. Well, friends, you need to realise what that portrays when you do that. It portrays the idea that you have all the answers. And it portrays that the other person's thoughts and opinions are of no value at all. Now, we need to be quick to listen. Quick to listen. And we need to show the other person that we are listening. Show them. How can we show them? Well, by looking them in the eye, for example. You know, as they're speaking, we shouldn't be looking up at the ceiling. Looking them in the eye. It'll mean nodding your head every now and then to show them that you're listening. It'll mean sitting with open posture. You know, not arms folded, legs crossed. Open posture. It means asking clarifying questions. Clarifying questions like, so when you say that, are you saying this or or are you saying that? It'll mean paraphrasing every now and then to show that you're listening. So if I understand you correctly, what you're saying is dot, dot, dot. It means agreeing whenever you can. doesn't mean that you have to agree on everything, but agreeing whenever you can. That's what being quick to listen will look like. And as as unnatural as it is for some of us, we, we have to learn to do it because it is so important in peacemaking. The next tip is to choose the right place and time to meet up, meet up. Okay, so make sure that you choose somewhere to meet up that isn't full of lots of distractions. If the telly is on, turn it off. If you've got screaming kids, make sure they're nowhere around. If you think the other person is going to feel nervous or suspicious about your meeting, well, maybe it will be best to meet up at a place where they feel most secure, maybe in their home rather than in your home. So choose the right place, but also choose the right time. Be sure not to bring up a sensitive matter with someone who is tired or in a bad mood, or who is worried about other things. Look for a good time. And the other thing with time is, make sure you have enough of it. Okay, don't do what I did a couple of weeks ago. Brought up a sensitive issue with someone at the end of a conversation when I knew that that person had to leave in about two or three minutes. Choose the right place and time. The next tip is, whenever possible, talk in person. Now, this point, I can't stress enough. The times I've seen people attempting to address a conflict via SMS or email, what are you thinking? (laughs) It almost always has bad repercussions. Because you see, when you email someone or text them, what's missing in that conversation is any tone, is any facial expressions, is any body language. And so it leaves the other person reading your email and thinking, well, when she says this, does she mean this or does she mean that? Or she does, what, what does she mean here? Is she... And you're not there to explain. So I know... It feels so much safer to deal with a conflict from the safety of your keyboard. 
But you need to realise that chances are you're making things worse. Now, maybe email can be helpful in order to organise that, that time to meet up, things like that. Or if the person simply refuses to meet up with you, then perhaps email might be the only way that you can communicate with them, yes. But whenever possible, your aim should be to talk with that person face-to-face. The next tip is to be objective. Be objective. If you're discussing an issue with another person, you need to avoid phrases like, you always do this, or you never do that. Okay, subjective phrases. Realise that when you use subjective comments like these, it comes across as, as condemning and condescending, really. So be objective. Instead of saying, you always get home late from work, Say something along the lines of, do you realise that, that in the last two weeks you've been home late from work five times? Be objective. The next tip is bring gospel hope. Bring gospel hope. Remember, your job here is not to condemn, but to bring hope. So don't talk down to the other person as though you yourself are faultless or as though you yourself, or they are somehow inferior to you, but rather share with them how you yourself have wrestled with this same sin as them, or, or perhaps wrestled with, with another sin. And then bring them hope. Tell them of how at that time God helped you and forgave you and continues to help you with your weaknesses. And remind that person again and again that the, of who they are in the gospel you know, it's, it's not about ignoring their sins or ignoring their need to repent, but rather it's about doing that in the, in the context of gospel hope. And when we do that, well, people are much more open to hearing what we've got to say and open to change too. The next tip is to use the Bible carefully. Yes, it is good to use the Bible but if it's not used carefully, then there's the real potential to alienate people rather than persuade them. So when you use the Bible, remember that you're not out to preach to that person. You've got to, do it, you've got to use the Bible with a mindset of building up rather than tearing down. What you're trying to do is engage with the other person. Engage them with the Bible. So rather than preaching at them, what you want to do is ask questions like, well, what do you think God means when he says this? Use the Bible carefully and most importantly, know when to stop. If the other person's getting irritated, then the best thing that you could probably do is pull back a bit, at least at this stage. Use the Bible carefully. The next tip concerns going to non-Christians. And maybe you've already been wondering this. You know, can, can you use all this with non-Christians? Well, according to Ken Sandy, most of the tips and processes that you'll hear today can be used even in conflicts with non-Christians. But he also points out that you're going to have to modify your approach somewhat, um, being sensitive to their particular perspective and, and needs. And so instead of referring to specific Bible verses, well, maybe you can appeal to commonly held interests or, or values 
such as the desire to preserve a marriage or the desire to maintain a reputation, things like that. And the final tip that I'll talk about today is the tip to recognise your limits. Okay, recognise your limits. The fact is you cannot force another person to change. You cannot make them take responsibility for their part in a conflict. You can't penetrate their heart and bring about repentance. Only God can do that. All you can do is your part and, and be faithful in it. Recognise your limits. So there you are. Lots of tips of how you might go about step two in gently restoring another person. And if you do meet up with them privately and they do genuinely take responsibility for their part in the conflict and there is genuine reconciliation, then fantastic. You can stop here now at point two, step two. But what about if you've tried and tried again to help the other person take responsibility, but they just refuse? What do you do then? Well, then it's time to move on to step three. It's time to take one or two others along with you. As it says in Matthew chapter 18, verse 16, But if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So in step three, in gently restoring another person, it involves calling in one or two other people to help with the conflict. Now, these people I'm going to call reconcilers. And presumably, these reconcilers are going to be respected friends or church leaders or some other godly and unbiased people. And again, they're not going in to the, to, with all guns blazing. Okay, they're not going in with the attitude of condemnation, but they too are going in with the attitude of wanting to gently restore and bring about reconciliation. Their primary role is to improve communication between you and the other person and also to offer some biblical counsel on the matter. Sometimes they might even act as arbiters, uh, providing a binding decision on, on how to resolve the matter. Now, the best scenario with reconcilers is that the other person is open to the idea of involving them. But that's not absolutely necessary, especially when the other person professes to be a Christian. But as much as possible, what you want to do is include that other person in the process of involving reconcilers, giving them a say in who those reconcilers might be, for example, and the fact is, the more you involve them in that process of bringing in reconcilers, then the more willing they will no doubt be to cooperate with them. But the hope in involving reconcilers is at the end, everybody takes responsibility for their part in the conflict and genuine reconciliation occurs. And if that does happen, great. Then that's the end of the process for you. You, you can stop here at step three. But... If either you or the other person still refuse to right your wrongs, well, now we move on to step four. Step four involves telling it to the church. That is, the reconcilers now act as witnesses, reporting what they know to the church. 
Read with me the next part of Matthew 18, the beginning of verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, the reconcilers, tell it to the church. Now, let me tell you what that doesn't mean. It doesn't mean standing up in the middle of one of our Sunday services and uh, announcing all the, the faults of somebody. Okay? Instead, it means those reconcilers and you going to the church leadership and telling them about what's happening. Now, in our case here at Chatswood Presbyterian, that would mean going to the elders of the church. And if the person you are in conflict, conflict with attends a different church, then it'll mean that the leadership in both churches need to be informed. And then it comes upon the church leaders to hold you and the other person accountable to God's word and to the commitments that you've made. And at this point, the decision of the church is binding on its members, okay? It is binding. That's why Jesus will go on to say in Matthew 18, I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. You see, the church has authority here, real authority. And so the only time that a Christian can properly disobey his or her church is when the instructions of that church are clearly contrary to what the scriptures teach. If the leaders of the other person's church come to some conclusion that, that you don't want to follow, then, then our leaders are going to have to work with those leaders to come to some kind of satisfactory solution. But if at the end of this step, both you and the other person take responsibility for your parts in the conflict and there's genuine recon uh, reconciliation, then brilliant. Okay, now we've reached the end of the process. But if either you or the other person even now refuse to listen to the instruction of your, your respective churches, then we move on to the final step of this process. Step five, treating that person as an unbeliever. And it stems from the next part of Matthew 18, the second half of verse 17, where we read, And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now, it's at this stage that perhaps all of the members of a church need to be informed about the situation. But even then, that's going to be done in a discreet and in an appropriate way. At this point, the whole church is encouraged not to just chat with that stubborn brother or sister as though there were nothing wrong, but they're encouraged to gently but firmly remind that person that there is important business that they have to take care of before they can properly worship God or take part in genuine fellowship. You have to realise this step, step five, it's not about punishing someone, it's not about condemning them. Rather, it's about still trying to gently restore them and have them take responsibility for their sin. What will it mean to treat this person as if they are an unbeliever? Well, it might mean withdrawing various membership privileges like uh, the Lord's Supper or, or voting rights. Uh, it will no doubt mean taking them out of... Uh, positions of authority and teaching roles, things like that. 
Uh, If they're behaving in a way that disrupts the peace of the church, then maybe it will be appropriate to exclude them from church property. But, unless that's happening, otherwise, these people should be welcomed into our Sunday services in the same way that any other unbeliever is welcomed in. But while they're here, it'll mean graciously and repeatedly reminding them of the gospel and and urging them to repent of their wrongs. And in treating them in this way, there are three hoped-for outcomes. Firstly, there's the hope that it will prevent the Lord from being dishonoured. You know, guarding against outsiders, seeing the sin of this person and thinking, well, the church must be okay with that. Secondly, there's the hope that it shows other believers the seriousness of that person's sin. And so protecting them from being led astray in the same way. And finally, there's the hope that it will help that rebellious person realise the seriousness of their sin and so turn from it and be restored to God. That's the hope. But there you are, the five steps involved in gently restoring a person we are in conflict with. Number one, overlook minor offences. Number two, talk in private. Number three, take one or two others along. Number four, tell it to the church. And number five, Treat him as an unbeliever. Let's pray now, shall we? Let's pray and let's thank God for his method of conflict resolution. And let's pray that next time we're in conflict, we do things his way. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that uh, when we find ourselves in conflict with another person, that we can respond in a way that brings peace, not just between us and them, but also in a way that brings peace between them and you. Father, help us. Help us when we are in conflict uh, to seek to do things your way. Uh, Help us not to lash out or condemn or punish, but help us to love the other person and to seek what is good for them and to seek what is good for your people and your reputation. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.